If you have a Bible, we're going to be back in uh, Genesis chapter 34 and 35 this morning. So if you can be flipping there. Uh, my name is Kevin Barra. I'm the youth pastor here at Grace. And hope you had a great spring break. Uh, travels, travels. Did you have a good spring break, people? Uh, uh. Excited to start work tomorrow if you didn't have break. Many of you adults are going, what are you talking about? I've been working all week. Don't have the fun stuff anymore. But I uh, hope you're excited to get back started if you are getting back in school. Um, I know the youth are going, no, I wanted three more of these. But parents are going, get back to school. Thank you. So I'm going to read a little bit for us from chapter 34. It's a long section. Uh, and as a disclaimer, you probably didn't spend your quiet time here. Uh, it's a tough passage. Um, I'm excited to walk through it with you guys. Um, but uh, Genesis chapter 34, starting in verse 1, and I'll skip and guide you as we read. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to the father of Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field, and as soon as they heard it, the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke to them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem belongs to your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to his father and, and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will ask. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me this young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace for us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, and every male among you being circumcised. Skip to verse 24. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, and all who went out by the city gate. On the third day, when they were sore... Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that uh, it, it, it speaks truthfully and honestly, um, even in the midst of tragedy. It doesn't color code it, it just speaks the truth. And so Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, as we study it, as we look deeply into it, that you would open up our hearts and minds to see what you'd want us to learn. And Father, I pray that you would guide my heart and my words, that they would not be my own, but yours, and that you would guide us into all truth. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I love action movies. 
And the part of action movies I love is the explosion, right? So it's the car chase. The guy's driving through, through the streets. There's enemies chasing him behind him. There's rocket launchers going off and blowing him up. I mean, it's the most exciting part of the movie. It's the best music. It's the most epic part. And honestly, that's why you like most uh, reality TV shows, right? I mean, it's the dysfunctional family. And you watch them make bad decision after bad decision and, until it reaches a point where it explodes, I was watching, uh, what, what is the movie, uh, Undercover Boss the, the other week, and it was, it was hilarious to watch this process. I mean, if you're not familiar with it, uh, these people go to NBC or something, and they hire them to help their company um, to, to make it go in a better direction. And so they put in spy cameras all around the business, so it's like a restaurant. And I'm watching this, and, and uh, the owner of the business watches all the mistakes of his employees, right? And it's, it's hilarious to watch because you watch these people that are supposed to be waiters having side businesses while they're waiting tables. And so they'll be selling paintings as they're selling food, or they'll be dealing drugs while they're supposed to be cleaning up tables. I mean, it's hilarious to watch because you watch bad decision after bad decision end up in a gigantic explosion. The, the restaurant is going bad. The food is terrible. Uh, it, it all goes poorly. And the reason I start there is because that's what we have in this moment of scripture. We have an explosion. We have bad decision after bad decision end up in a chaotic, terrible situation. And it's so important to, when you're reading the Bible, not to read it like a moral fable or fairy tale. In a moral fable, here's, here's the premise of a moral fable. You have the hero, you have the storyline, you have the problem, the moral lesson, and the solution. That's kind of how a moral fable works. But that's not what's going on in this section. If you were to apply that framework to this passage, you would end up with some bad conclusion like, when your sister gets hit on by a bad guy, don't destroy a city. I mean, that's kind of where you'd end up. But that's not what's going on. Instead, we're watching the situation where a father had made bad decision after bad decision in raising his family. And the result was chaos. The result was an explosion. A terrible situation made by the bad decisions of this father. And it's true. The decisions you make in your life set the direction of your life. The patterns you set in your life set the path of your life. And what we have in this moment is Jacob, and he made several bad decisions. His direction, not his intentions, set his destination. And that's true with you. Your direction, not your intentions, set the destination of your life. So if you really want to go to California, you have all the intention of the world to get there. But if you head I-35 north, you're never going to reach there no matter how hard you try. Your decisions, not the best of intentions, sets the destination that you arrive at. And in this moment, we're going to look at three detonators, three things that Jacob set in his life that ended up in this chaotic situation. Three detonators, three major problems that he began in early in his life. And the first detonator is this, that he painted the wrong picture. John Maxwell in a book called 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, they're true, you can't refute them, they're irrefutable, uh, says it this way, in the law of the picture, He quotes U.S. Army General Colin Powell, and he says this, You can issue all the memos and give all the motivational speeches you want, but if the rest of the people in your organization don't see you putting forth your very best effort every single day, they won't either. It's the law of the picture. 
People do what they see. And here's the point. The picture you paint by the life you live speaks louder than the words you say. Several years ago, I was uh, bringing my dog to dog training, right? Which is a terrible title because it's not dog training, it's owner training. So we show up with my dog, and as I'm walking into the building, uh, my dog's jumping up crazily, and, and so she stops me and says, okay, when your dog jumps up like that, here's what you do. You treat him, you get him under control, you do that. And we'd kind of go on a little bit further. We're supposed to like go like through this little obstacle course or something. And, and, she's, and he's not paying attention. He's going sniffing other things. And she's like, okay, okay. When your dog does that, here's what you need to do. And she's continuing this all the way through the whole dog training. And at a point I get frustrated because I'm like, look, when are you going to train the dog, right? Like I'm not sniffing things I shouldn't. I'm not running where I shouldn't be. I'm not jumping on anyone here. Like why is all the focus on me? But what she was showing us is a crucially important point. What you reward is repeated. And secondly, what you allow to happen will continue to happen. The dog trainer was simply showing us this crucial point. What we allow to happen will continue to happen. The picture you paint by the life you live speaks louder than the words you say. What was the major issue that he had, that Jacob had? Is that he let sin sit. He didn't deal with with the sin of his family. And it began early on. They were in Laban's house and Rachel took idols she shouldn't have taken. In Genesis 31, 19, you saw it a while ago, Rachel stole idols from her father's house and she should have done it. I mean, Laban was a terrible dad and he was a terrible father-in-law, worse than anyone you've got, right? And, and it was bad and they were finally leaving. They had gotten all the possessions. They were on the run. They were finally leaving this terrible location. And what does Rachel do? She grabs the idols, sticks them in the pouch and hides them and covers them. And Jacob knew it. And he said, nothing. Secondly, Dinah took steps she shouldn't have taken. His daughter Dinah in this moment is going to go, and it says in verse 1 and 2 that she went out to spy out the, the women of the land. But this wasn't a safe place. In fact, this isn't where they should have even been. Jacob stopped too early. Genesis 28 tells us that Jacob was supposed to come back to Bethel. He was supposed to start there, but it was complicated. It was too difficult. Bethel was a rugged wilderness. He didn't want to stop there, but instead he stopped near the kingdom of Shechem. And Dinah saying, well, I'm going to go check out the ladies, go hang out with some other women just to meet some other people, ventures out. And that doesn't sound like a bad deal, but you didn't do that in that culture. You didn't do that at this time. To leave your daughter unprotected, going to visit a people you didn't know, was setting the stage for disaster. In fact, all the readers reading this originally would have gone, oh my gosh, he did what? He didn't send an entourage with this girl? He didn't protect her. And she was wronged terribly. And then we see later on that the sons, they then take lives they shouldn't have taken. I mean, you see bad decision after bad decision play out. And and at one level, you may object to this and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. It seems like his family are the ones making all the mistakes. Why is it Jacob's fault that his family seems to be making all of these decisions? But the truth is, we do the same thing. I mean, you watch coaches across the nation. And if one player makes a bad decision, we blame the player. But if a team is making bad decisions, we look at the coach. 
If the team isn't winning games, if the locker room is in chaos, we blame the coach. Why? Because the coach sets the culture of the locker room. The coach sets the patterns that he allows to happen with the team. If there's a problem, you look upstream. You don't just look downstream. And Jacob, he didn't deal with sin. He didn't deal with these root issues. And the truth is, parents, you've been given the primary responsibility of God to be spiritual providers for your children. You are the primary spiritual providers for your children. It's not if, it's what are you providing. And I've talked with some fathers and they've, they've said, well, you know, what I'm doing is I'm working hard, I'm making money, and, and my primary responsibility is just financial stability. My responsibility is just to make sure that my family is kind of set up and, and good to go. I said, well, th- the problem is that is not your sole responsibility. Just making sure that your kids got enough money to get in the college they want to go to or have the things that they need isn't your primary responsibility. That's good. That is your responsibility. But it doesn't stop there. Proverbs 18.11 says this, A rich man's wealth is his strong tower and like a high wall in his own imagination. If you aren't stepping in and leading, but you're remaining passive and letting these things play out, that's a problem. Your imagining is going to go differently. The picture we paint by the lives we live speaks louder than the words we say. The second mistake was this, that he played favorites. And we see this all throughout his life. I mean, the most obvious example is in Genesis 29, verse 30. It says, it says this, that Jacob went into Rachel also. And indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah and served with Laban another seven years. I mean, Rachel was the one that he wanted. Rachel was the one that he loved. Leah, well, you know, I mean, things got complicated and she got thrown into the mix, you know. And, and, and what he did is he dealt with Leah. He didn't love Leah. In fact, everyone saw this. Everyone knew this. Verse 31, it says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened up her womb, but Rachel remained barren. Everyone knew that Leah wasn't the favorite. And these kids, these are Leah's kids. Dinah is the daughter of Leah. Simeon and and Levi, they are the sons of Leah. These are the sons and daughters of the unloved woman. And Jacob, well, he loved Rachel. And these sons were great, but they weren't the sons and daughters of the loved woman. And Jacob played favorites. And this isn't the only moment. We're going to see it next week as we look in, in the next chapter. He played favorites. And let's be honest, it's easy to play favorites. And you may not say to yourself, like, I have my favorite kid. The other ones, you know, but this one. You may not say it that way. But there's some people that you get along with easier. There's some people that you naturally connect with more easily. In fact, I read several articles about business owners. And it, it was interesting. They promote people more on favoritism than anything else. And even to their own detriment, like even if it's not beneficial to the overall company, if I like them, I'm going to promote them. I'm going to rank them higher in evaluations. We all play favorites in every area of our life, even if it's to our own detriment. The, the challenge with this is that Jacob played favorites. And where this plays out is with his kids. Because his kids didn't think that he was for them. I ran track in college and favoritism is the, the easiest place to see played out in athletics, right? Because the best athletes get the best gear. It's obvious. They get it first, right? 
The best athletes get to go to the best meets. The best athletes get all the opportunities. They get massages while the other guys don't. I mean, it's obvious who the favorite one is. And right after we run the national championship race in cross country, um, one of the guys on the team, he's kind of a lower tier guy, he got injured. And I went in to visit him. He's sitting in the locker room kind of rehabbing the trainers working on him and icing and stuff like that. And I asked him, I said, hey man, what's your recovery time look like? How long is this going to last? And he says, it doesn't matter. I was like, what? He's like, even if I recover, coach is never going to let me run in a big race again. He's already told me. He was already defeated while he was recovering. See, the tragedy that that plays out when we play favorites is, is this. There's all sorts of issues. But the people underneath us don't think we're for them. And the sons of Jacob, they didn't think that God was for them either. And so what happens? Well, Dinah is wrong terribly. And Jacob says nothing. Look at verse 5 of chapter 34. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were in the, uh, with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace. And then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field. They heard it. And the men were indignant and very angry because of what they had done. And Jacob, in the rest of this chapter, says nothing until verse 30. Jacob is silent through the entire events. The sons, they said, we've got to do something. And so in verse 13, they deal deceitfully. They set up this plan. Okay, you wronged us, so here's the only way that we'll actually give her to you. You're going to become circumcised, which is a great plan. I mean, honestly, I think the sons at this moment thought, there's no way they're going to buy into this, right? Because circumcision can be painful. Um, Not going to go into any details, but... It was a rugged society. They probably had flint knives, not good anesthetic, not a lot of painkillers back then. And the thinking of these sons is probably they're not going to buy in, but they do. See, circumcision was supposed to be the sign of the covenant. It was a sign saying, hey, I am serious and I am separate. The covenant was a symbol. I am serious, I am devoted to you, and I am separate. I am other, set apart to God. And they take this symbol that was supposed to be a symbol of God's people, and they use it as a ruse to set these guys up for a trap. They take what should have been a, a, a worshiping moment of God, showing full surrender, and they set them up to trap them. I mean, the closest equivalent we can come up with that I could come up with is, is like saying, hey, yeah, you, you want to be friends with me? Great. You got to get baptized. All right, come on up. And then I hold you under the water. Like that would just be weird. And as the, as the people are reading this, they're going, they did what? They used this sign of, of being committed to God and devoted to God to set these people up for a trap? And it says in verse 28, they all did it. Or sorry, verse 25. And on the third day, they were sore, which makes sense because it's a painful process. And they went in and annihilated the city. Why? Why did they do this? Was it because of favoritism? Here's why I think it is. Look at verse 31. Jacob responds in verse 30. We'll get to that in a second. Verse 31, they said, but they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? See their statement? Do you hear the exasperation? It's like, 
Dad, someone had to do something because you never do anything. Someone had to move for us because you're not for us. I had to move for us. We had to do something because dad, you just sat and let them talk and you did nothing in the process. You always do nothing. We had to do something because who's gonna protect us? We can't let that happen to our family. And you may not, I mean, this is an extreme example. I mean, you probably haven't destroyed a city. But let's just be honest. Some of us have felt the effects of favoritism in our family. You're not the favorite child. You've never been the star athlete. You were never lined up for the promotion. And and no, you haven't destroyed a city. But what you've done is said, look, no one else is for me. And it's all about me. If anyone's going to protect me, it's going to come from me. And I'm going to act. And so I'm going to push you down. I'm going to step over you. I'm going to make sure that my path is smooth because you're not for me. And the truth is this. You have this deep seed of hate and bitterness right here because someone played favorites in your life. And parents, you may have felt this as a son or a daughter. And some of you are replicating it in the sons and daughters that you have. You weren't the favorite. You picked the prize one. You reward them. You don't reward these others. And it creates chaos. And it's terrible. And the tragedy is you see the exasperated response of these sons saying basically, you gave us life, but you didn't help us live. You didn't step up when we were down. You were here physically, but you stopped guiding us a long time ago. You play favorites, Dad. And lastly, he feared repercussions more than reissues. Look at his response after this happens in verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Look at how many I's and me's are in that section. What is his focus? The repercussions. This whole thing blew up in my face and it really, really stinks. Guys, I didn't want this to happen at all. This is bad for me, my family. But where are your kids? Yeah, yeah, my family. This is bad for me. See, he only responded to the crisis. He didn't invest in the process. See, he didn't deal with the root issues of his sons. What were his, the root issues of the sons? They were vengeful. They were violent, they were dangerous, they were deceitful. And this is going to play out in the very next chapter. Jacob never deals with it. And what he tries to do is parent retroactively. He didn't parent proactively in the process. He tries to parent retroactively. In this moment, he's like, I really didn't want to blow up like this. But it did. And parents, if you don't invest in the process, there will be a crisis. And if you don't deal the time now, there's going to come a point when you will pay out that time later. If you don't invest, invest initially, you will pay it eventually. And I walk with the parents as they walk through this ministry and as I get to walk alongside them and I watch the problems and I see the crisis and then everyone comes in. If you, you're saying, I, I work a lot, I'm really busy, here's the truth. It will blow up at some point and it will take your time. If you don't invest in the process, it will blow up. 
and youth, young people in the room, here's the truth. You've seen this happen in school, right? You don't do anything and oh my gosh, right? And you've seen this happen in relationships. You do nothing and it blows up. You've seen this happen in your health, right? If you eat donuts your whole life, you'll look like a donut. You'll deal with it eventually, right? This is true in life. If you only deal with the crisis, you don't invest in the process, it will blow up in your face. For me, um, several years ago, I was uh, changing the battery in my car. I was parked right back here, um, right behind the church, and there's lots of cars around it, and, and so I, I take out the battery, and I'm not a mechanic guy, you know, I'm not like handy with anything, right? But I, I can take the battery out, and I get a new battery to put it in, and I borrowed a ratchet set from a friend of mine. Now, the, the sockets were too long, so as I'm putting the new battery in, I'm kind of ratcheting it back into place, um, the socket is too long, so it's touching some metal, and it, a spark throws into my face. And so I back up, oh my gosh. This thing's live. I'm not going to grab that metal handle again. And, and so I'm thinking they're figuring out what to do, and it creates a closed circuit, and suddenly the engine catches on fire. Oh, crud. <laughs> so I go running inside. I'm like, is there a fire extinguisher here? I grab the fire extinguisher, run back out to my car, shh, hose it down, and then I'm going, what am I going to do? Because now the ratchet is welded to the engine and really hot. I can't touch it. So I'm sitting there kind of playing through, what do I do now? And it catches on fire again. Oh no. (laughs) And so I empty the fire extinguisher on this and I'm like, oh my gosh, finally it goes out and I'm just left there with a burn victim, right? (laughs) A lot of chaos, a lot of pain. Why? because I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) I didn't know the tools that I was using. And the end result was I created a lot of chaos and I spent a lot of time and money and payoff trying to write what I had just let explode in front of me. And some of you have done the same thing. You've made bad decision after bad decision. You've laid detonators in your life and family, and you've seen the explosion. Some of you are in the middle of it. Some of you are setting yourself up for it, but it's going to happen eventually, and it is a terrifying thing to walk into. But the good news is there is chapter 35. And I'm so glad after this, God moves in chapter 35 in a way that we so need him to. In verse 35, God makes three moves for Jacob and three moves that we need as well. Read with me in verse 1 through 4, chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away your foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves. And change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that we may make there there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. And has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree near Shechem. God offers a restart. The first thing God does is offer him a chance to start again. He hits restart. Um, Several years ago, I've never been a video game guy, uh, and the last game system I bought was uh, what my parents bought for me when I was a little kid, and it was the original Nintendo, right? 
And a friend of mine, I didn't play much. And it, it, I mean, the original Nintendo, if you don't know what it is, it's like the great, great, great grandfather of your modern kind of Xbox 360 kind of experience. And my friend had a Sega Genesis, right? And so we'd kind of swap back and play. And my friend, I would go over to his house and play the Sega Genesis. We'd play like football or something like that. Is there Madden 1 maybe? I don't know. And, and, and we're playing this thing. And whatever like things were not going well for him, he would go up to the front and hit reset. Foom, and start again. Which was awesome when you're on his team. Miserable when you're playing against him. It was so frustrating watching this guy hit reset. You know, I mean, a couple, couple months ago, there was a, a commercial that came out called uh, the reset button, right? Some of these commercials, like the guy would be at a date and things would start going wrong. And then suddenly he'd be like, oh no, Choop, reset. And then like be able to say the right things in that moment. See, we, we, we see this happen. And in all of us in our lives, there's moments that we'd want to go, I wish I could hit reset on that. <laughs> I wish I had this moment where I could restart, retry, because that went horribly. And here's the great news of the gospel. That is exactly what God offers to us. See, God reveals sin to us and gives us the opportunity to repent, to reset, to restart. How does he do it? Through the person of Jesus. See, the truth is your sin is so bad that it requires death. And Jesus lived the life we could not live in perfect obedience to God. And he died the death we deserve to die, taking all of our sin on himself and giving us the opportunity to start a new life empowered with him. He gives you the opportunity to restart. And so God in this moment to Jacob said, all right, I could get up. You're not in the place you should be. Let's go to Bethel. Let's start again. And immediately when God offers this restart, you know what first comes to Jacob's mind? the idols of his family that he lets sit. When God offers you a restart, you can be fully forgiven by Jesus, but it means that there are some things in your life that you've got to bring correction to. And the first thing that he saw was, man, I've got to get rid of these idols. This false worship is going to inhibit our worship of God. Let's go deal with that, bury them here and move forward. The truth is this, when God offers you a restart, there are certain patterns in your life that have been set there. And you've got to start pulling them up by the roots. I love Chuck Swindoll. He says it this way. I've never had God change a flat tire for me. What's the point? He's saying, he's saying God is for you. God is with you. But there's certain things that you've just got to take care of yourself. And some of you have laid some explosions in your family. You've wrecked some relationships. And so what you have to do is you have to go to those people and you have to say the two most profound, powerful phrases that they will hear. I'm sorry, and I was wrong. What does it mean to repent? It means you accept responsibility and that you say you were wrong. And some of you have parents that have never said that to you. And it would go a long way for you personally if your dad would just say these two phrases, I'm sorry, I was wrong, and just took responsibility for the chaos that he made in your life. And for us, the, the first step to mending some relationships, to going on to a new start, is just to go to those people that we have wronged or those people that that we have let things sit and say, you know what? I'm sorry, I was wrong. And then you begin the process of mending those relationships. Secondly, God first hits reset. He offers us what we all need to do. And secondly, 
God shows us he's for us. God does what only he can do. You see, they're still not out of the woods yet. They had wrecked a community, destroyed a city, and they are worried about the collateral repercussions. In verse 5, this is amazing. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God did what only he could do. And that's what God does for us. He forgives us of our sins and he opens up a new way. And let's just be honest. Some things in our life, we've created such collateral damage that we can't handle fixing us. Some of us have allowed some addictions reign in our lives so deeply that we can't fix us. Some of us have wounded relationships so bad that no matter how hard we try, we can't mend them. And if that's you, my encouragement to you is to start praying. Because there's some things you can't fix, but God can. And there's some relationships you've burned and saying I'm sorry a thousand times won't fix it, but God in his grace can move that person's heart toward reconciliation. God can change the situation. You may need God to do the only thing that he can do, which is bring full reconciliation. And lastly, God makes this move. He points us forward. Read with me in verse 8, verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will be, and I will give the land of your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken. And Jacob set a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him. A pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil over it. So Jacob called the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. God does an amazing thing in this moment. He points him forward. He says, there's more to do. You've made a wreck of some things, but there's a future ahead that I still want to point you towards. There's more to do. And here's the greatest news that you can hear this morning. If you're not dead, you're not done. If there's still breath in your lungs, God has still has a plan and a hope for you to walk into. If you're not dead, you're not done, and God can still use you. One of the worst moments of Israel's history happens a century later when they're taken to Babylon. And while they're in Babylon, they are, they are oppressed, they are beaten down. And the reason they're there is because of all the mistakes that they've made in their past. They're worshiping false gods. They're not serving the Lord. And so God says, fine, I'll send you to the capital of false gods. Live there. And the prophets cry out. They plead with God, do something. And in Jeremiah, the weeping prophet says this in this moment of chaos. In Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. Paul says in Romans 8.28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who God loves, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
See, God can bring triumph at your tragedy. The problems of your past don't have to determine the direction of your future. If you've made mistakes, God isn't done with you. He's pointing you forward. Repent, turn, let me do what I can do. But there is still a future and a hope. If you would submit your life to me and walk with me, I'll show you the detonators. We'll diffuse them together. And there is a future that you can walk to. So I'll give you a couple applications and a closing illustration. First application is this. What detonators are you setting in your life? What things have you let sit that are there that are bad decisions you've made over time and you know at one point they're going to blow up in your face? Secondly, what actions of repentance do you need to make? What idols have you set up? What things have you allowed to happen that, are, that you just need to take a step and repent? And lastly, I would ask you this. What's holding you back? What's stopping you? I know for, as a man, for me, the biggest issue I face is pride because I don't want to admit I was wrong. I don't want to admit they're an issue. And what's funny to me though, is is that as I looked at action heroes, every modern action film is kind of based on this idea. A guy who blew it, who made decisions to live a different life. So you see the movie Thor, right? He was a, he was a chaotic mess in the netherworlds, whatever he was, right? He was, a, he was a young man making a lot of bad decisions and his father sentences him to like America, right? To kind of deal with it. And then at a point later on, he finally stands up after all the mistakes he's, he has made and lives differently and sacrifices his life for the people. I mean, you see him make this change. Although he made a wreckage, he makes a change. Uh, the movie Arrow, or the TV series Arrow on CW, I'm watching it right now. It's the best thing CW's put out ever. Um, and, and I'm watching it. It's the same storyline. He's a, he's a mess, a spoiled brat, but makes some changes. The movie that I think all of you will get is the movie Iron Man, right? And it's the, most, it's the most clear of how this plays out. I mean, he's a rich, wealthy playboy, has everything at his disposal, all sorts of money. He is brilliant, but his hand is off the wheel of his company. And he makes explosive devices that someone underneath him sells to... to competing foreign nations, it goes bad, they blow up, and he ends up in a cave, and he goes, oh my gosh, I need to correct some things. I want to live differently. And he goes and kicks butt and takes names. It's awesome. It's a great storyline. <laughs> you know hear the Christian version? There's a man named John Newton. He grew up in a rough background. He was beaten He was enforced into indentured servitude on a ship. He was beaten and abused. He ended up on a slave ship for a while, beaten and abused there. And by the time he arrived at Sierra Leone, he was a hard man. And he eventually became a slave trader, ship owner, ship captain of his own. And he would trade slaves and move people. Until one moment... As his ship is sailing across the ocean, a storm swells up. And it's chaotic. It's a mess. He's afraid for his life. And he prays in that moment, God, if you get me through this, I will change. And the change didn't happen immediately. He was still a slave owner for a couple of years. But then he met George Whitfield. 
and William Wilberforce and saw the, the wreckage that he was bringing with his life, the way that this was not going in a good direction. And he said, fine, God, I'm yours. And he became a pastor. And he wrote one of the most famous songs you know. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. If your kids have not burned down a city, you are not without hope. (laughs) If you have not been a slave trader, you still got a shot. And even if you've done that, God still says, my arms are open to start anew. If you'll come, return to me. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you that we don't have in in the, the story of the life of Jacob a perfect man, a sinless man, but a man who made a lot of mistakes like we've made a lot of mistakes. Jacob is not the hero of the story, and truthfully, Lord, we are not the heroes of our story. You are the one true hero that could save us from our sin and lead us to new life. So what I pray for us, that you would help us diffuse the things that are, that are wrong in our lives, that are explosive. God, you help us to walk with you in a path of new hope and freedom. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great morning.